morning and welcome. I'll give you just a second to make your way back to your seats, but man, this is a good sign. All right, let's come back to our seats. <clears throat> it is good to be with you. My name is Jonathan Swindle. I'm the worship and executive pastor here at New Life Midtown. And our senior pastors, uh, Pastor Jade and Christy, are at the tail end of their sabbatical, guys. And um, I want to say two things, and then I have a quick announcement. One is immediately following second service, which starts at 11 and will be done 12, 20, 12, 30, somewhere in there. We are having New Life next today. So if you are new with us, and also welcome to all of the family members in town for Thanksgiving. Welcome, we, we're so glad that you're here. But this is for other visitors, other guests that live in the area and that potentially are looking for a home church. And if you've been, and today's maybe your first Sunday or if you've been two, three, four times and you wanna hear a little bit more about the ministry of this house and uh, get to know some of the staff members, then immediately following second service, we're having a lunch straight through those doors. You are welcome to attend. I have two other brief announcements here. One is adopt a family. We introduced this last week, and I'm not going to give too many details about it, but this is our Christmas outreach, and there are cards in the front of the chairs in front of you. So sorry, guys, for those of you up here in the front row, but fortunately, you're staff, so you already know what this is about. But if you're interested in participating with our adopt a family, it's our Christmas outreach. There are info cards in the chair in front of you. And then lastly, and man, this is exciting. If you've been around here for many years, you know about Pie Sunday. Y'all know about Pie Sunday? Do we know about Pie Sunday? Okay, so Pie Sunday is a tradition of Freedom Church, then Antioch Church, now New Life Midtown. The tradition lives on. So the Sunday following Thanksgiving, we want to invite you to bring a pie with one, one caveat, no nuts, no nuts, no nuts, no nuts. Bring a pie and we're going to end first service a little bit early so that we have a solid 45 minutes between services. So we'll encourage you all to bring a pie and stay late and the second service attendees to come a little bit early and the whole church will have time to fellowship throughout the building around pie. Does that sound like a good tradition? Sure does to me. So I'm looking forward to all these nut-free pies. <laughs> looking forward to them. Well, church, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank you for that. Man, that is robust. So today is the last installment in our series on the book of Ruth. For those of you who have not been with us, we have taken each of the four, well, we've taken each of the three, and today we will take the fourth chapter from the book of Ruth. And a quick recap of the story is the book of Ruth comes immediately after the book of Judges in our Old Testament scriptures, and it tells the story of a woman named Naomi leaving Israel with her family due to a famine. They go to the nation or the country of Moab, and her sons marry two Moabite women. But then just in the opening first few verses of the story, her husband and her two sons all die. So the story opens with great tragedy, a famine, and then the passing of, of uh, a husband and two sons. And it's the story of her telling her two daughter-in-laws to go back as she's going to go back to the country of Israel now that the famine is over about 10 years later. And one of them named Ruth chooses to go with her. 
And it is the story of them coming back home, finding hospitality, and then being re-welcomed and ingratiated back into the country of Israel, and particularly the community of Bethlehem. And we're now at the end of this story, but before we jump into chapter 4, I want to remind us how chapter 3 ended. So last week, we ended with the story of Ruth essentially proposing to Boaz and him saying, wow, this is bold, but I'm going to take you up on this. And in the morning, uh, leave before the sun is up, and I'll do what I'm going to do. And what happens is she goes back Ruth goes back to Naomi, and it says, so Ruth stayed, oh no, that's the end of uh, chapter two, the end of chapter three, then Naomi said to Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Have you ever waited on God or someone else when you had done all that you could do? Of course, the answer is yes, and it's yes in a variety of ways, big things, small things. Some of you in this room are waiting on the Lord to do things that you've been waiting on him to do for years. And uh, at the risk of being emotional, I'm just not going to list those things because I know what some of them are, but you know what they are. And then there are little things like waiting on a coworker to finish the report that they said they were going to finish and you can't do anything until that report is done. We've all been in that kind of situation, right? Just a couple of weeks ago, I took an exam to finish up my, uh, my Master of Theology degree. And I walk into the exam, and I'm the only person taking the test. So I made the mistake of thinking, oh, man, these test results are going to come back so quickly. You guys know where this is going? I'm the only student. I had to handwrite essays, but I still thought... These guys, it's going to be so easy. I'm going to know by Tuesday or Wednesday if I pass this exam. And so Monday rolls around. This is over two weeks ago. Monday rolls around, and I'm refreshing my email every 15 minutes. (laughs) Boy, did I overestimate my professors. (laughs) Tuesday, Wednesday, a week. Two weeks goes by. And I'm not, tell, I'm not kidding with you. I'm refreshing my email every 15 to 30 minutes. What a waste of time, I know now. But you understand. And finally, I got the results this last Friday, two weeks. I did pass, fortunately. Thank you. But we've all been in those kinds of situations. Sometimes waiting 30 minutes for something feels like an eternity, depending on what it is. This last Friday about an hour after I got my test results. This is the world that we live in. I I went to run an errand and I'm southbound on powers and a guy flies in front of me going about 80 miles an hour, cuts me off, pulls right, literally right in front of me and recognizes that there's a car diagonal to me in the far lane and realizes he's heading straight for this car, pulls his wheel to the left flips and goes into oncoming traffic. And it was by far the worst accident I've ever seen. The road was closed. If you were going northbound on Powers, you would have seen the road was closed for five or six hours because we went, we went back that night. It was around North Carefree, and it was still closed about 6 o'clock that night. So I, I Googled a couple, I mean, into the evening, like, what happened? Like, I saw it, but what happened? 
And they assumed it was road rage. And they assumed road rage based on how the accident occurred and I'm sure some of the other witnesses, but someone was having trouble waiting for what was probably less than what would have ended up being a minute, maybe, at a traffic light. So waiting is something, we just don't do good with time and with waiting in our society. And we end this story with the last words of Ruth and Naomi coming in chapter three. So all that happens in chapter four, they don't speak. They are bystanders for most of it. For some of it, they participate, but they don't speak. And they end their part of the story in waiting. Now, this is largely the story of Advent, which begins next week. Aaron will be kicking us off, Dr. Aaron Brown, next week. So we're not going to spend the whole time today talking about waiting because that is the theme of Advent, which starts next week. But I want us to remember, for those of us who know the story of Ruth, and today we're going to talk about the resolution. We're going to talk about all the goodness that happens. And we're going to talk about the kind of community that can act as a seedbed, as an incubator for God's good work coming forth in our midst. But don't forget chapters one, two, and three. Don't forget that until the climax ending moment for Ruth, she felt like an insider. She didn't know until it happened at the end of the story that it was actually going to turn for her good. And sometimes I think as believers, particularly in our society where we live such, by, by and large, we live such good lives overall, by and large, not every moment of every day, of course, but we can forget what it is like to be helpless and what it is like when the hand of God truly breaks through on our behalf. Have you ever been in a moment like that? I have. I've been in those moments and I don't want to forget those moments, what it is like for the hand of God, sometimes miraculously, sometimes through the hands of other people, to break through on my behalf and on your behalf, and to, to remember what that is like. And I think that that is appropriate as we go into Thanksgiving. And Dr. Jim, I thought your prayer was so beautiful. It's not lost on me that some of us in this room are not living in Ruth chapter four. Now, I know we haven't read it, so... Some of you are like, okay, all this talk about what's about to happen. Are we going to read it? Yes, we are going to read it. But I, I just, I want to set this up to remind us of all that happened before this moment so that we can feel the weight of what ends up happening in Ruth chapter four. Chapter four brings the resolution, the classic storybook ending, right? And <clears throat> this looks like in chapter four, what started in famine ends in harvest. What started as barrenness ends in birth. What started with Naomi being empty ends in her being called Naomi again in fullness. What starts for Ruth as displacement ends in finding a home and finding a people. And this story happens as a neat progression. Chapter one, one scene, chapter two, new scene, three, new scene, four, new scene. This book is very neat and tidy. And of course, we know that our lives are not neat and tidy in this way. New life, when it bursts forth, is not always apparent for some time. 
certain times, new life happens, goodness, resolution, the goodness of God that we sang so much about this morning breaks through, and sometimes it can take us a while to see it. But sometimes our lives don't happen like the lives of these characters. Sometimes our lives happen in a reverse order. Sometimes our lives happen with lots and lots of goodness, and then they end in tragedy. Sometimes they're in the middle, like Naomi. Like Naomi, we find out through the end of this story, scholars help us discern in the details, that prior to them leaving Bethlehem, their family was very wealthy and very prominent in the city. And she goes to a nation where nobody knows her. Because of a famine, she's at the mercy then of other people, which will then be Ruth's story as Ruth returns with her and is at the mercy of people like Boaz in the community of Bethlehem. And then Naomi finds newness in life at the end of her life. There are all of these different ways, but all of us will experience on varying levels both tragedy and new life and fulfillment. And sometimes the tragedy seems to far outweigh the new life. And sometimes our lives are so good that the goodness far outweighs the tragedy. And this is what it is to live in this life. And so right before we read, I want to make this statement that Ruth's message, the book of Ruth's message, is a hopeful message. Yes, but its intent is not to promise us happy endings to every circumstance in life. Nor does it promise us that after tragedy has happened, only good things are ahead. Now, if you've lived for like more than 10 minutes, you already knew that. But the tendency can be to read a story like this and always just assume that the goodness of God breaking through means the circumstances I've been hoping for are going to change in my favor. And the dark side, the bad news this morning is that that doesn't always happen. But that doesn't mean that God is not at work. So here is the message of Ruth. Ruth tells us a story about how God's work in our lives is unrelenting. God's work is unrelenting. And it paints a picture of what it looks like for humans to participate in that work. That is the story of Ruth. Is God working? But we almost never see explicitly in the book of Ruth, God working. And if you've been here for the other three installments, you've heard me say that every week. God works in and through the hands of the characters of the story as they work. So Ruth paints the picture of how God's work in our lives is unrelenting. It never stops. No matter how much destruction, no matter how much sin, no matter how much brokenness, God's work on your behalf is unrelenting. It never, ever stops. And Ruth tells us a story that paints the picture of what it looks like for us to participate in that work. Okay. So here's the question, and we're going to read chapter four together. What type of environment fosters the work of God? What type of environment fosters the work of God? If you have your Bibles, turn with me. I'm reading in the NIV. If not, it'll be up on the screen. We're going to read the entirety of chapter four, and then we're going to talk about what it said. Here we go. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down just as the guardian redeemer had meant, he had mentioned came along. Notice the 
happenstance nature of this. He goes down to the gate, and just as he does it, it just so happens that the guy walks by. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Man, he's got some authority. He's talking to elders like, sit here, and they do it. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, the man said. Then Boaz said, sly guy here, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, by the way, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. In parentheses, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, all, any lawyers in the room, you're going to love this. One party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Man, we have complicated things, have we not? <clears throat> buy it. Uh, so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. It's done. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among my family, his family, excuse me, or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. Note that verse. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the women or through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamor bore to Judah, as Dr. Jim mentioned in his prayer. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and he gave, she gave birth, my goodness, she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, who would become King David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. So what happens? Let's distill this a little bit. 
Boaz goes to the gate and the other man happens to walk by. Notice the man is just the man, the kinsman redeemer. There's no name. In a community this small, he surely would have known his name. And they intentionally, the, the writer of the story intentionally leaves his name out. And we're going to come back to that, but I want you to note there's no name given. And throughout this story, almost at every scene change, there is some phrase that indicates something like happenstance, right? Like we read that at the beginning of chapter four. It happens uh, again when Ruth goes to the field that just so happens to be owned by Boaz. And then a verse or two later, just in the nick of time, Boaz happens to come to the field and happens to notice Ruth out in the field with the workers. There's this language throughout the story that is meant to give away something that seems to read like happenstance, like things just happening sequentially in, in order that makes way for these amazing things to happen. And I think what we're meant to do is read into that and to look for and infer, ah, this is the work of the Lord. It's the hidden work of the Lord, as we talked about last week. It's the work of the Lord that is to the naked eye unseen, but we are being given a clue. So then the man at first is interested. And then of course, when he realizes he's not just buying a prized piece of property, he goes back on his offer and says to Boaz, no, you buy the land and take Ruth the Moabite to be your wife. So Boaz then agrees to all of this in front of the elders and the people who also just so happen to be available and nearby at this time. The people then witness and they pray that Ruth would now hear these things, that she would be like Leah and Rachel who built up the house of Israel, that she would have standing and be famous in Bethlehem. And may her, her house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamor bore to Judah. And as Dr. Jim also mentioned in his prayer, Perez means one who breaks forth and breaks forth particularly from the most unlikely of circumstances. I mean, think about what blessing they are praying over Ruth, the Moabite. No jealousy, no reminding us that she's a Moabite and that she doesn't belong Nothing but praise and acclamation and blessing of this woman. It's almost as, if, almost as if the community is actually happy for her. Amazing that a God-fearing community would be happy when something like this happens to one of the quote-unquote least of these. Can we think of any other stories in scripture where something like this happens? Let's keep going. We're going to come back to all the goodness. So then uh, the baby is born, and the women say to Naomi, the Lord has not left you without a next of kin. And the women together name the baby Obed. This ending, there is this genealogy that we read with all the funny names. You thought it was just me showing off my ability to share the funny Hebrew names with you. That's not what it is. I probably said most of them wrong, but that genealogy actually scholars believe is a way of validating the whole story. That not only is this story that we've been living in for four weeks now, not, it's not just 
a quote-unquote hallmark story, just a good story about this one time that God did something to some random person. But this is God acting in a group of people in a definitive way that they would have never suspected that was going to change the trajectory for everyone who has ever read this story. That little genealogy at the end is the validation of the whole story itself. That by the way, everything that you just read, you thought was just, it's cute and it's awe and it's you know sentimental, like, oh man, that's really good. But actually the little genealogy says, you know what? This has actually affected your life. That God worked in a small community, in a woman who didn't belong, through a widow to impact my life, through the birth of a child who even at the time, nobody knew was going to be anything, who ends up being the grandfather to King David, who then centuries later, someone else is born in the town of Bethlehem, who is, of course, Jesus, the son of God, the son of man, but also the son of David. Obviously, you're all brilliant and you connected those dots before I said them. But let it not be lost on us that this is not just a singular story. That this is actually one of the key stories. That when Matthew gives his genealogy, Matthew includes this story right before the birth of Jesus' story. So what is chapter 4 telling us? And I've got a bunch of things here and then I want to as we end, I'm going to come down and hone in on one of the things that I, I sense God speaking to us today. What is chapter 4 telling us? Chapter 4, I think, is telling us, amongst other things, that there can be life after longing and tragedy. That, that tragedy and longing don't write the entirety of our story. Remember, we talked about in chapter 1 that one of the possibilities for Naomi saying to Ruth and uh, Orpah, why don't you go back, is the, the deep down desire to want to distance herself from everyone and everything that reminded her of all that she had lost. And unfortunately for you and for me and every human throughout history, we don't ever get to distance ourselves from the parts of our stories that we don't like. The good news about following a living God is that he's always adding to our story, that God is always making something of our story that we never thought was possible. But the shadow side of that is that we are always attached some way to the darkest parts of our stories that we don't like and we wish were never there. But there can be life after longing and after tragedy. So how do these characters experience the newness of new life that God brings forth. So Naomi, she came back empty and bitter. When she came back, the people said, is this Naomi? Which means um, pleasant. And she said, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter because the Lord's hand has been turned against me. And then somehow over time, through the faithfulness of the people around her, we get to the end of the story. And in the NIV, it didn't say it explicitly, but some of your translation translations will say that she didn't just care for the baby. She actually became the wet nurse for the baby. And I made a joke about it last week saying, yeah, that's kind of weird. It is. 
But think about this woman who had lost her husband and her sons and any form of her family lineage carrying on. Now not only has this grandson, but she actually is the one entrusted to bring to perpetuate his life. Like what a blessing for her. What a turnaround. We just sang a minute ago about God turning graves into gardens. Like that's not possible for any one of us in the room. That's not possible for any human who has ever lived aside from Jesus Christ. That we serve a God that somehow brings fulfillment to our longings and is able to bring restoration to our tragedies. Boaz likely wasn't married. He had no children. He had plenty of money, but as some of us in the room, not myself, know, money doesn't buy happiness. <clears throat> but through his openness to someone deemed an outsider, he now has a family from whom will come King David and eventually the Messiah. I mean, think, a middle-aged man, maybe a little older, not married, no kids, has money, trying to just do the best with what he has to take care of the servants and to take care of the widows and the orphans and the people that might need things from his fields, from what he does have. He's probably, at this point, lost all hope of having a family. And then comes a woman who doesn't belong, and he offers her hospitality. And now not only does the man have a family, but he has, we might say, the family. The family that brings about King David and eventually King Jesus. Now let's look at Ruth. Accompanied Naomi as an outsider from her homeland into the tiny town of Bethlehem. And out of loyalty to her mother-in-law, which she didn't owe her, which cost great risk, by the way. She experienced extraordinary hospitality and has now made an insider through the faithfulness of Boaz. God was at work in the convergence of these three characters and their stories after great tragedy to bring about something and someone greater than their wildest dreams could have ever predicted. Now, I want to speak just for a moment directly to you and say, I, I don't know all of your stories. I know a number of them. And the ones that I know, most of them include the goodness of God breaking through in some obvious ways where you have now chosen to follow Jesus with your life. But many of your stories also include periods of great darkness. Poor decisions sometimes, sometimes things that happen to you that you had no control over. And a lot of times, it's a combination of things that happen to us and the way that we respond. And I want to tell you today that those things are part of our story, but God is not done working. God is not done working. There is hope yet. There are people in this congregation right now who dreams have died, and you're just hoping to just make it one day after another after another without more tragedy. And I don't know what your future on this side of eternity holds, but I know the God who is currently presently working on your behalf. And I know that what is held in the future for all of us is a beautiful picture 
of new heavens and new earth. And as we come to the table in about 10 minutes, we're gonna read a passage from Revelation and I pray that it will illumine our minds and I pray that it will re-inspire hope in a living God who is able to bring life from our longings and from our tragedies. And this morning, I wanna give attention now to the community itself. The community itself. We spent essentially, and I didn't even plan it this way, the first week talking about Naomi, the second week talking about Boaz, and last week talking about Ruth. But what about the community? The community actually plays a large role in this story. And here's the interesting thing about this story and its time period. So we've talked about the placement of the characters and of what takes place was in the time of the judges. It tells us that in verse one and how it's placed right after the book of Judges, but this story wasn't actually written in that time. It was written hundreds of years later. And most scholars believe that this was written in the post-exilic period. That might sound like history jargon to you, but it matters and here's why. The, the, the people of Israel, from the time that the story happened, they were in the Judges, from the time of King David on for a couple hundred years, they had a succession of kings. And after the succession of kings, the nation divided into two, and then shortly thereafter, they find themselves in exile. And when they find themselves in exile, they are questioning everything they know about this God, Yahweh, and everything about all of the promises that had come through their descendants, or their ancestors. Sorry, thank you. I appreciate that. All of their ancestors, they're questioning all of this. There's no way that we would be displaced from our land, finding themselves in Babylon, and what in the world is happening? And the prophets tell them, you're going to be here a while, so put down roots. So they put down roots, and they do their best to be faithful to God in another land. And then they actually are freed. And then they go back to Israel, and there had been a small remnant of people in Israel the whole time that didn't go. A very, very small remnant of people. So this is written in the time of the post-exile, after the exile which is this time where we end, where I just ended in the little lineage there. So the people come back from Babylon. They've been there for generations. And now they are trying to learn what is it to be the people of God with those who had a completely different experience, who didn't go with us into exile. And now it seems like maybe hope is being restored, but we don't want to get our hopes too much up because last time we did that, we went into exile. So it's a people learning how to be the community that God had called them to be yet again. And on top of all that, there is the looming anticipation of the coming Messiah. That if we're going to believe some of the promises of God, then maybe we should still believe that one. And what is it going to look like for the Messiah to come to earth through us as a people, now that we're back in our homeland. And that's the time when the story of Ruth is written. The time when they're trying to learn how to live in faith as a community again. The more that I read the story over and over and over again in the last five or six weeks, the community, I realized, is the incubator for God's work to take place. 
all those beautiful manifestations that we just talked about with Naomi, with Ruth, and with Boaz, the community, I think, acts as an incubator for that to take place. Ruth is a snapshot of what's possible for God to do within a community of people. The community in Ruth, as I said, functions as an incubator, but what, what is an incubator? Well, one, it's a safe place, and two, it's a right environment, a curated environment. An incubator can be for plants. You wouldn't call it an incubator, but Kirby and Stephanie, they keep their plants in a greenhouse, a type of incubator, a protected, particularly cultivated environment for the plants. Uh, incubators also work in the field of science. Now, I'm clearly not a scientist, but since science is all around us now with COVID, the way that they work on COVID vaccines and these kinds of things is they watch them, they watch the virus happen in these little incubated environments and they see that it, how it responds to certain things. And I, I'm proposing that the community in the book of Ruth actually acts as an incubator, a curated environment for the work of God to take place. All of these things happened and they happened by the hand of God, but they happened by the hand of God through the hands of people. We've been saying this for four weeks now. The greater society that we live in does not promote Christian community. Think what you want about Christian nation, whatever. I have my opinions about that, but that's not this sermon. <laughs> but if you wanna know what our society really values and the messages that our society really deep down believes, I would encourage you to pay attention to something. Our marketing, our commercials, our billboards, the reality TV shows, the things that are explicitly made to appeal to our senses. And what do they tell us? They tell us a different story. They value sensation over being faithful. What do we see in the book of Ruth? We see faithfulness being elevated. They value the individual over the community. But what do we see in the book of Ruth being elevated? The community. They value blaming or encourage blaming over taking responsibility. But what do we see over and over and over again in the book of Ruth? We see people in the most healthy way possible taking responsibility for themselves and for the people around them. And lastly, our community, our society encourages jealousy, but what do we see elevated in the book of Ruth? Blessing, blessing, blessing. As the church, we've been called to live as the body of Christ, an alternative community in the world. So in closing, I wanna look at this community and I wanna ask the question, how can we, this community, the people in this room right now, minus those who live out of state and are visiting family for Thanksgiving, but you are always welcome here. How can we become an incubator for the work of God in the people that the spirit will draw here? Guys, I don't know if you know this, but the spirit is not drawing perfectly whole, complete, restored, healed people here all the time. Maybe you are, but I'm not. Most of the people sitting around you in some way, shape, or form are broken, are in need of a work, a manifestation of the Spirit in their lives. They're in need of 
newness in their life in some area. God is drawing, drawing people to this place that are broken and they need a work of the spirit. So how can we become the kind of people that act and live as an incubator? I wanna read a quick passage from 1 Peter and then I'm just going to list a few things and we're gonna to come to the table. I should have bookmarked this, maybe I did. I did, I bookmarked this. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. I mean, think about that. If every time we opened our mouth to other people, we acted and thought as if our words were the words of God. They should do so with the strength. Oh, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. As I read that passage this week and I thought, everything in that passage is exhibited in the book of Ruth. Everything in that passage, the way they speak, the way they serve, the way hospitality is offered, the way they offer their gifts as God's grace one to another. So how can we become an incubator? Number one, be available to one another. If you're taking notes, this is the point where you write things down. Number one, be available to one another. These are very practical things. Think about all the times when I, I made the comment earlier about happenstance that it just so happens that so-and-so walks by and it just so happens that all the elders are there available. And it just so happens that once the little sandal transaction takes place, the quote-unquote people of the town are just there ready to bless and to pronounce blessing and to pray over them. People, I know that this is a small town and we don't, this is a small town. This is no longer a small town where we live that we live in a different society, but think about what it is like to be available to one another. They're present when Naomi and Ruth arrive way back in chapter one. They arrive and immediately people say, is this Naomi, are you back? And they're in chapter four, the elders and the townspeople, they're all just there. We can't be the seedbed for God to do all of the things that he wants us to do if we're never available to tend to one another. It's not enough to just show up on Sunday mornings. Number two, know our story and the stories within our community. Now, of course, we need to know the story, the story of scripture, the story of God calling out a people and sending Jesus, but that's not the story I'm talking about. Look around the room right now, like actually look around the room. So many of the people in this community are new in the last six to nine months. And guys, we don't want to be a community of people who don't know who's in the room. Now, obviously we're not going to ever be able to know everything about every person in here, but what are the pain points in people's lives? What are their passions? What are the things that they've gone through that now they can be witnesses for the goodness of God in? 
Like, know the stories of as many people around you as possible. Because here's why. If you have a hard time judging people, it's most likely because you don't know their story. Most of the time when we're judging people, when we're casting judgments, it's because we don't know where they've come from. We don't know what their pain points are. So if you find yourself with a propensity to judge, with a propensity to gossip, with a propensity to speak things that are not life-giving about people, chances are you don't know enough of their story. So number one, be available to one another. Number two, know their story. Number three, share what needs to be shared and keep the rest to yourself. It's a very gracious way of saying that, right? I wrestled with that. No. But think about what all is not said in this story. So in the beginning of the story, Naomi tells both of her daughter-in-laws to go. And one of them does. And the other is Ruth, who the story's written about. Not a negative word is spoken or written about Orpah, who goes back. Not a negative word. Nothing. She's not dishonored for leaving. Then Boaz, in scene two, when Boaz encounters Ruth, he says, I've heard all that you have done for your mother-in-law, Naomi. So there, think about what is shared. What is shared is about her struggle and about her journey. What is not shared is any of the negative parts of that story that we don't know because they're not in the story. Number three, the first of kin's name. Remember I mentioned in the beginning, he's called the man, the kinsman redeemer. In a community this small, the community might have been the size of this entire church that they're living with day in and day out. There's no way that he didn't know his name. But his name is not recorded in the story. Why? Most scholars believe to preserve his dignity. To preserve his dignity. No one in the story is judged, shamed, gossiped, or lied about. Can we become the kind of community that share what needs to be shared and keep the rest to ourselves? And lastly, they were invested in the lives of one another, both the living and the dead. They were invested in the lives of one another. They cared for the living. They made sure that there was enough to go around, but they also honored the dead. I mean, think about in chapter four there, all of the references to Malon and Kilion's name, to buying back the piece of property to preserve his name to keep his family name. They're not just concerned with getting theirs and making sure that the community's functioning well because if the community's functioning well, then eventually it's gonna come back from me. They're also concerned with the dignity and the honor of those who have gone before them. This is one of the marks of a true community is that they care about people when they are there and when they're not not just the people who are present because they actually might come around to benefit me in the future, but even the people who it's impossible for their lives to benefit you any longer, they still honor and dignify them. Let's stand together and prepare our hearts to come to the table. And uh, Kristen, you can come. We're concluding this series and there's been so many themes, so many messages. Some of you in this room right now might be in chapter four. 
you might be in a place where you are walking or heading into a season with lots of newness, with lots of anticipation, with lots of expectation, where the work and the hand of God is clear in your life. You might be in chapter one, on the heels of a life full of tragedy, someone that maybe you felt the prayer that Dr. Jim prayed this morning. You might be somewhere in between. And here's what I know. For people in chapter one to have a chance to become chapter four people in this community, it will require the community. God doesn't need us to get his work done. God has no need. But God has chosen to do the majority of his work in the earth in and through the hands and the mouths of human beings. And he has called us to be the kind of community that can act as an incubator for the goodness that he wants to bring forth among us. And my challenge and my question to us this morning is, are we willing to do the hard things to become those kinds of people? Are we willing to be present to one another? Are we willing to sit down and learn and listen from the stories of people who might be nothing like you? Are we willing to share what needs to be shared? And then what's really difficult is keeping our mouth closed to all those other things. I think we are. I think we have already shown to be that kind of people. And we, the church, greater church, but also New Life Midtown, are called to be the kinds of people who make way for the kingdom of God to break in. And as we come to the table, I want to read a passage from Revelation chapter 21. And I want it to pique our curiosity, to reignite hope. I want it to remind us of that life which we ultimately will all be living together, but that we are called to embody in part right now. So if you're comfortable, please close your eyes. And I want to read from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to come to the table together. John the Revelator says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, man, what a poor page turn. And the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with him, with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, be reminded God is making everything new. God is making everything new. The pain points, the brokenness, the woundedness, the poor choices, the things that were done to you that you had no control over, the things that have been in your heart you've been longing for for decades. God is at work making all things new. Amen.
Let's come to the table of the Lord. Exit out the left side of your row. Come and receive the elements. Go back on the right side and we will partake in just a moment together. I don't want to presume that we all know what we are doing when we receive communion, but this is one of the sacraments of the church, and we believe that this was ordained by Jesus, that he told us to do this, and as often as we do this, to do it in remembrance of him. And generally speaking, there are three dimensions to this meal. One is that we look back and we remember the finished work of Christ, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and was resurrected by the power of the Spirit back to life and is presently now living on the right hand of the Father. So we remember the finished work of Christ. Secondly, we trust and believe that the second dimension of this is that he is present to us in this moment through the Spirit, that anything can happen. God can break forth in any way that we serve a living God. And after all, we are charismatics here. We believe that the Spirit is moving And as we receive this, that we aren't just remembering something that happened, that the Spirit is present to us in that moment, doing something that is beyond our explanation. But the third dimension is the dimension of looking ahead, of anticipating, that now we do this as an act of faith in what Jesus has already done, but there is coming a day Well, we will all be renewed and resurrected in our new bodies and we will be with him face to face as that verse in 1 Corinthians says that we read last week. And when we receive these elements and partake together in this meal, all three of those dimensions collide into the present. So this morning, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be present to us and make Christ present to us in a way that is beyond our understanding. Through this little piece of cracker and through this juice, we ask you for nourishment. We ask you for all that we need to go forth into this world for life and ministry. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So break the wafer. Church, this is the body of Christ broken for you and me. Let us take and eat. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, this is the blood of Jesus Christ, the Messiah shed for you and for me. Let us take and receive. Thanks be to God for these good gifts.
And as is our liturgy, our tradition, to be reminded as we go back out into the world that every good thing comes from the hand of God above. So we're going to do this by singing the doxology together. If you don't know it, the words will be on the screen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Church, thank you for joining us this morning, embodied and online, and I pray that on this beautiful Thanksgiving week that you would go in the peace of Christ, in the name of Christ, and as the body of Christ to every person that you encounter. Go in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You are dismissed.